everybody, and welcome back to Catching Up on Crime. My name's Jenna. I'm coming at you from Chicago, where it we're full of snow here, honestly. And mom, are you stuck there? Yes, this is Melinda coming to you from Iowa. And yes, I am literally stuck here. It's been <laughs> the past 24 hours. So I'm basically stuck inside. Oh, that's okay. I kind of miss those days living on a farm. It's not, especially one where we've got like an uphill driveway. Uh, it's not hard to get stuck there. No, so, not at all. And speaking then, of stuck, so I got Sawyer, who we have like about four foot drifts in different places. So he doesn't want to go outside anyway. He'd rather just stay inside and poop on my carpet. But <laughs> you push him outside and he goes and jumps in this four foot drift. And I literally lost him. Like it kind of scared me because he was just gone. Oh my gosh. He's not well, like the other Basil hand, who likes yeah. the snow. Yeah. Basil, my dog, she's a 24 pound Shiba Inu and she loves the snow. Like I was kind of bummed that we didn't really get a lot of snow until now because seeing her play in the snow makes me so happy. Like she will find drifts just to like hop in and she'll paw at the snow. One of our favorite games is I'll make a ball out of a, like I'll make a snowball and she thinks it's a ball. And so when I throw it and it disappears in the snow, she goes nuts. Like, mom, where's my ball? Where's my ball? (laughs) So funny. funny. So we've had a lot of fun in the snow, but it has taken us a minute to podcast again, uh, just because I've been sick and kind of out and about. But I'm super excited for our fourth episode because it's, I have the floor and I'm going to tell you about a true crime story, mom, that I know you're going to be very fascinated with because it's something we're both interested in. But before we get into it, uh, is there any fun things you've been up to or recommendations or stuff you've been doing that we should know about? Hey, I wanted to first off, let everyone know that um, we already have an update. Jenna, we're in um, episode four and we have an update from episode one. Um, So if you haven't listened to episode one yet, go back and listen to it because it's a good one. It's on Conrad Roy III and Michelle Carter was the one convicted of involuntary manslaughter in 2017. She was sentenced to 15 months, but she will be released early. She was expected to be released in May, but she is now actually going to be released this coming week, January 23rd. This doesn't really come as a surprise because most cases, you know, if their inmates have good behavior and no issues, which seems to be on all accounts, the situation with Michelle, that they are released early. But another thing with this case is that, okay, so again, Michelle was convicted of involuntary manslaughter of Conrad Roy III. Um, He actually killed himself, but she was texting him. So it's the case of of her texts causing his death by suicide. Anyway, her attorneys obviously appealed this. And just this past Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that they will not be hearing her appeal. So this means that her involuntary manslaughter conviction stands as is. Her attorneys argued that the conviction should be thrown out because it violated her free speech rights. So this is important because this means that this case will set precedent for future cases such as this, you know, and also there's one going on right now in Boston where In Young Yu has pleaded not guilty to involuntary manslaughter charges after her boyfriend took his life um, after more than 47,000 or something texts from her. So anyway, that's a pretty huge thing for the U.S. Supreme Court to to do. And because like I said, now other cases like this can look at this case of Michelle Carter as precedent for going forward. Also, Jenna, have you seen 
in, on Netflix. It's called Killer Inside the Mind of Aaron Hernandez. Yes, I haven't, uh, I haven't watched it, but it keeps showing up. So Netflix you need to watch me. it. Yes, that's my recommendation for today. I, again, we've talked about this, like, I thought this was a case that, you know, I knew all about. And sometimes you just get sick of hearing, you know, the name. But there was a lot in this that maybe either I didn't know or I just knew like the surface of it. I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. It had a lot to it. It, you know, of course has, you know, his criminal history. It also has a lot about, you know, the New England Patriots that he was playing football for. And, you know, Jenna, I'm not a fan of the New England Patriots, but after this, I'm even more not a fan. But anyway, um, it's my recommendation. It also has an interesting, you know, twist in it. I don't know if you remember, Jenna, but his, after he killed himself in prison, they had an abatement law, which then vacated his criminal conviction or his murder conviction because it was in appeals. And so they vacated it. However, in 2019, I didn't know this part, that in 2019, the state got rid of that abatement law, saying it was old-fashioned, it didn't, you know, it wasn't... Well, what, that meant that he wasn't convicted of anything anymore, basically? Right, right. Why, would, why do we have all these dumb laws that, like... Well, yeah, <laughs> it was way, it was, like, from way, way long time ago, and I think what mm-hmm. happens is they just, nothing ever happens with them, and so they just stand. But right. because of this case... And probably because it was such a high-profile case, too, that in 2019, they did away with that abatement law. So that is no more. They actually then reinstated his conviction, which I just think is crazy in and of itself, Because he's because, dead, right? Yes. And they're reinstating it? Oh my God. Yes. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. Like, these laws don't go, like, retroactive, so to speak. I don't know if that's exactly the word. But, yeah, like, if, if they make a new law, it doesn't go back to other people. So... It's just kind of blows me away that they did away with the abatement law and then they went back and reinstated his conviction. Oh, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to watch that. There's a few that I'm, I'm actually in the middle of watching all of Bong Joon-ho. He's a South Korean film director. He makes a lot of just interesting movies. So I'm, this week I'm watching all of the movies that he's ever made because he just released the movie called Parasite. I don't know. If you're into films, you'll know what I'm talking about, Mom. You might not just because it's actually a few of them are in a different language. But since we're giving uh, recommendations, I have a recommendation that actually ties into my crime today. And it's an old one. It's a show called The Following. Mom, you and I loved this show. I still love the show. I've watched it twice, actually. And I believe it's on Netflix, right? I think so, yeah. It was only three seasons, which kind of I know. Kind of sucks. So it, I think it ended a few years ago because it's from, it's from 2013. So I assume it ended in 2016. It's all fiction, but it's about a guy that comes back, you know, he retires from the FBI, but then he comes back because somebody that he, a serial killer that he had convicted escapes from death row and he becomes a cult leader. And he was fixated on Edgar Allan Poe and just like makes all of, you know, his cult is very like poetic and I just, I don't know. It's, it was such a good show. I just Obviously like anything like with that. Kevin Bacon in it is going to be great. But. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but also it shows you like a person's psyche, like yeah, brings you right into what they're thinking and you know why. And I, I don't know. I, I like those kind of shows that kind of 
get a little more in depth. Well, yeah, and there's the madness, parts of it, so to speak. There's parts of it, like with all the other shows that I feel like I always kind of like, where, yeah, they try to put you in the mind of this murderer, but then they also almost try to get you to feel bad for him at times, and they try to make him look like a good guy at some times. Like, him and the FBI agent, obviously, they form that weird connection. Yeah. And, like, at one point, isn't he kind of, like, protecting him? Yeah, and you know what? That sounds so weird, but think about that. Like, if you're hunting a person and you're trying to get into their mind, like, you do form, you have to form, like, a weird, like, You think you know them type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my recommendation just because it ties into my crime today, um, and you guys will have to keep listening to find out why. For my second true crime story, I wanted to find uh, I wanted to find a Chicago-based killer. As you could probably assume, there's an abundance of those to choose from. <laughs> but while I'm not ready to talk about my personal favorite, H.H. H. Holmes, or my least favorite, Richard Speck, I was able to find a pretty crazy story that, well, it has it all. So this week, I'm going to share the stories of over 17 women who were tortured and killed at the hands of a sadistic, satanic cult called the Chicago Ripper Crew. Mom, do you know about this? Not at all, I don't think. Oh my gosh. I'm sitting here kind of like, wow, this is is an intense story. So Uh I'm getting ready. (laughs) I know. And we both kind of enjoy cult stories and shows and stuff. So I thought this would be a fun one. So on May 23, 1981, Linda Sutton, a 26-year-old mother of two, was abducted. And 10 days later, her body was found in a field in Villa Park, Illinois. Her body had been mutilated and her left breast had been amputated. And it seemed at the time to be a random act of violence as no one else had gone missing or showed up dead in the area. Um, And the police had no leads. So they stopped investigating until almost a year later on May 15 of 1982 when Lorraine, which uh, her family calls her Lori Borowski, She's 21, and she was abducted just as she was about to open the realtor's office where she worked in Elmhurst, Illinois. Her body was discovered five months later in a cemetery in Clarendon Hills. She had been beaten and sexually mutilated as well with her left breast amputated. So there's Linda Lori, who was abducted when she was opening her realtor's office. Um, When this was on the news, they would say, like, she had been taken right out of her shoes because the uh, her shoes were found like right in front of her office which is just such a scary thought to see my uh, one of my roommates has like a fear of seeing like clothing and personal items just in the streets in Chicago which happens all the time but she always just gets like bad vibes from it and now after I hear that I'm like okay I get it like you don't know what happened to that person Um, so they found like her purse and her shoes were right outside the the, um, building she works at so they clearly just snatched her her shoes um, her shoes her heels were just right in front of the door like she That's had just scary. been about to open the door and they took her um yeah, like that either yeah on may 29 Schumach 30 of lombard was having an argument with her brother as they were driving home from their family's streamwood restaurant mac got out of the car by hanover park and she was never seen alive again Her body was found in a field in South Barrington after four months with all the same injuries and mutilations as the two victims before her. Okay, so there's been three victims, and 
their bodies have not been found for like several months, each of them, yeah. correct? Okay. The first one, Linda, well, actually Linda was found 10 days later. The, and then Schumach wasn't found for four months. months. And she was um, abducted by Hanover Park, but then found in South Barrington. So clearly was taken somewhere. How far um, apart is that? I'm actually not sure, but I do know, like, I, I'm not quite sure. South Barrington is, is a suburb, so it's not in Chicago. Two weeks after Mock's abduction, a woman named Angel York, she was 23, is grabbed by two men and thrown into a van. And inside there were two more men that handcuffed her slashed her breast and performed a sexual act before throwing her into the street, still alive. York's description of her attackers and their orangish-red van did not produce any leads at the time of the attack. The gang did not strike again for another two months. On August 28, 1982, the body of Sandra Delaware, just 18 years old, was discovered on the bank of the Chicago River under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge. And you'll hear me talk about locations a lot just because, like, these locations actually, like, I know where most of these places are. I was going to say, I've been to that Fullerton Bridge. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird. Fullerton Avenue is a big, is a big street. Yeah, Yeah. it is very weird. And that's, like, north of um, Chicago, which is supposedly, you know, a good area. Um, She had been assaulted, stabbed in the abdomen, strangled, and her left breast was amputated. On September 8, 31-year-old Rose Davis, a marketing executive, was found in an alley in the Gold Coast neighborhood suffering almost identical injuries as Delaware, except this time it appeared she had been beaten fatally with an axe. Um, Gold Coast is where I work. So very upscale neighborhood that has pretty much always been like one of the nicer neighborhoods. So it's, and you know, she's a marketing executive. So these girls are kind of all over the board. Some of them were sex workers. Some of them were just young girls. So there's not a, like a, a clear MO of, of uh, like a victim. A month later, the gang committed their last crime. Their victim, Beverly Washington, was just 18 years old. She was found by a railroad track on December 6 in Humboldt Park. In addition to other injuries, her left breast had been amputated and her, rest, her right breast was severely slashed. Only this time, she was alive. So she survived the attack and was able to give descriptions of her attackers and the van they used to abduct her. The police ended up stopping the motorist of a Dodge van that matched the description Washington gave them. The driver, Edward Spritzer, was 21 and is interrogated and tells the police that the van belongs to his boss, Robin Gett. So Robin Gett is a 28-year-old carpenter electrician, and he's arrested on October 6th of 1982. And Beverly Washington identifies him as her attacker but unfortunately, he had to be released because the police had little evidence connecting him to the crimes, just, uh, just her recounting uh, what happened to her. That was all they had. So they uh, let him go on, on bond. After further investigation, though, the police discovered that in 1981, he had rented a room in a motel with, along with three friends, each with adjoining rooms. The hotel manager said that they had held loud parties and appeared to be involved in some kind of cult. Police then tracked down the other men, Edward Spritzer, who was driving the van, and the Cocorales brothers. On Monday, after Gett was released, a 25-year-old woman told the police that she had been picked up on North Sheridan Road by a man that matched his description. Relax, she said, the man told her. I'll give you $150 if you tell me the goriest, bloodiest stories you can tell. 
When she hesitated, she told police he began flailing at her head with a homemade axe, which had a large piece of broken glass embedded in the wooden handle. Wounded and bleeding as she raised her arms to ward off the attack, the woman said she had crawled her way past the driver and tumbled out onto out of his side of the car screaming, um, and so he sped off. Authorities started questioning everyone in Get's life. They learned that Get twice had done construction work for John Wayne Gacy. Yes. Oh, wow. That John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Who was convicted of murdering 33 boys and young men. And uh, like I said, they were investigating every single part of his life was under a microscope. So a friend was uh, questioned and he quoted Get saying, the only mistake Gacy made was burying those bodies under his home. And then a former roommate of Getz flunked a lie detector test, after which he volunteered information about bodies being buried underneath railroad tracks and in forest preserves. His story touched off a massive search for more victims as the man police now were calling a modern-day Jack the Ripper. Uh, the paper started calling his cult with four members the Chicago Ripper Crew. So obviously we've got these four members, right, Get the Cocorales brothers, and... Uh, Spritzer, but it kind of seems like other people might have known because if this old roommate has information about where the bodies are, it's like, who's all involved in this? Right. He's at um, least an accomplice. Yeah. So, and he failed the lie detector, right? Right. The roommate did. Yeah. A new warrant was then issued for Get, and on Friday, November 5, detectives arrested him or rearrested him at the home of a relative in Carpentersville. The police also arrested the three other men involved. When interrogated, Thomas Cocorales confessed that he and the others had taken women back to Get's place, what Get called a satanic chapel um, that he had set up in the attic with like red uh, carpets and candles and just other creepy things. So there in the attic, they had raped and tortured the women and amputated their breasts with a wire or knife. Cocorales went on to say that they would eat parts of the severed breasts as a kind of sacrament and that Get would masturbate into them before putting them in a box. Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers had a strong belief that Get did in fact possess supernatural powers, which he used to control the crew both mentally and physically. Cocorales claimed that he once saw over 15 breasts in the box. From here, the case just began to snowball. Investigators came together from all over Chicago. They all had similar cases of missing or deceased women, and they started to put all these women together and realize that they had a serial killer. Though they committed atrocious crimes, the Ripper crew didn't immediately strike the public as murderers. Get was happily married with three children. Um, Like I mentioned, he was a carpenter. He had his own carpentry-like business. And his followers also had happy home lives and steady jobs just like he did. The Cocorellis brothers and Spritzer confessed to their crimes, but Get protested his innocence. After a series of trials, Thomas Cocorellis was convicted of murder, but only sentenced to life imprisonment as his reward for his initial confession and cooperation with authorities. So he was only convicted of one murder, or he was convicted of more, but only sentenced to one life sentence because he helped out? So he he pled guilty. So he was convicted of multiple murders, but right, he only got the life imprisonment because he cooperated right uh, actually at this time they had the death penalty so he didn't get the death penalty he just got life in prison okay for helping them out right get uh never he maintained his innocence and so he is the only one out of the four that's actually not even convicted of murder 
He's serving 120 years in the Menard Correctional Center for the attempted murder and rape of Beverly Washington. So the girl that survived, that's all he was charged with. So um, did they go and like raid his place or do a search warrant and find anything? So the Chicago Tribune quotes unidentified investigators as saying the attic of the two-story brick house was forbidden territory to teenage girls hired to babysit forgets three children. But one girl told detectives she tried to enter the attic and found it boarded up. Get and his family moved from the home before police suspected Get and a circle of his acquaintances might have committed a series of killings and sexual mutilations in the Chicago area. When authorities recently entered the attic, they found six crosses, some black and some red, painted on the walls. Thomas Cocorales, the one who gave up all this information and said that he knew the room contained at one point a satanic altar. So it sounds like he moved, so they didn't find anything in the attic where the murders took place. But I can't find anything that they found any human parts or anything at the time that they were all convicted. He was probably smart enough to know they were coming and got rid of evidence. Well, right, because remember he was actually arrested and they couldn't keep him. And then he was uh, he was let go on bond. I'm sure, I'm assuming that's when he was like, okay, shit's getting real. Right. Or at least you um, know, that's what I would think. I don't know. Yeah, because it doesn't say. And I, I mean, I looked up a lot of articles there's the the chicago tribune did a really good job of covering like all of this and even up until this last couple years have still been releasing stories or releasing um, information so get is serving 120 years in the menard correctional center for the attempted murder and rape of beverly washington and will be eligible for parole in 2022 Andrew Cocorales was sentenced to death and was executed by lethal injection on March 17, 1999. He was actually only 19 years old. Edward Spritzer was sentenced to death, but the sentence was rejected in George H. Ryan's last-minute commutation of all death sentences in Illinois in 2003. So um, Andrew Cocorales was actually the last inmate executed in Illinois almost 12 years before Governor Pat Quinn signed legislation to abolish the death penalty on March 9, 2011, and he commuted 15 death sentences to life imprisonment without parole. So now Edward Spritzer also has a, a life sentence. So it sounds like it could end there, right? But it gets worse. On November 13, 1986, because of clerical errors, Thomas Cocorellis his guilty conviction is reversed and is ordered a new trial. He again pleads guilty to Borowski's murder in exchange for a 70-year sentence. So he now is only pleading guilty to one murder. They drop um, a couple others uh, in, in order to give him a plea deal. And the families of the victims attempt to get the plea deal overturned, but they are unsuccessful. Thomas Cocorellis was released from prison in March 2019 after serving half of his 70-year sentence. Uh, So there's some law in Illinois called day by day where you could basically get released in half of your term. He was set to be released two years earlier, but the Borowski family fought really hard to keep him in prison. So they delayed that process by two years. In 2019, officials said there was nothing more they could do to hold him. 
and medical professionals had evaluated Cocorales and they came to the conclusion that he was not sexually violent. They portray him as a hapless follower with a low IQ. Lorraine Borowski, Lori's mother, is now 83. She said that she never imagined such a man would ever be released. She hopes that he would stay in jail until she died, which I think just goes to show how kind of just scared she is. Like, she wanted him to be in jail until she died. She didn't want him to be in jail until he died. She's like, she right. Want, she just know? wanted the satisfaction or the security um, of her of family and her own, yeah. Away from her. So she recalls the five months her family searched for her daughter. She would carry a sheet with her to cover Lori's body in case they ever found her to give her child dignity and death, which was just so sad to me that, you know, they knew she was probably dead and she just wanted to protect her still. In June, CBS Chicago actually interviewed Thomas Cocorellis. He was rejecting all interviews, but then he finally let um, someone interview him. And basically, I watched it. It's really short. He says that, like, police fed him information, and in the trial, he just said what the police wanted him to say, and it sounds very much like the case of making a murderer. Who is that? Who's Brandon Dessie. Right. So they kind of are like, oh, it was, it was his brother. He's saying people that think he's innocent are saying it was his brother, and he was just dragged into it, and he just wanted to help his brother out, and he actually had no participation but police say that, you know, even if he was coerced and was told stories, he had such a low IQ that he wouldn't have been able to, you know, like the phrase you can, or the, the theory that you can remember truth way better than you can remember a lie. Like, it's really hard to remember a lie. Right. They were saying, like, the, the stories he was telling them were way too detailed and they never changed. The stories never changed. So there was no way that he could have made it up. I was going to say, that's a tactic that a lot of investigators use is they'll have you like tell the story and then they'll go to the middle of the story and say, okay, Mm -hmm. now what happened right after that? And, or they'll kind of have them tell it like backwards or, you know, if you can kind of mess up the timeline, but yet they still say the same thing. That's a huge you know, red flag that they, they are actually are telling the truth because like you said, you can't lie and remember all those details in order. You, you can remember the truth in order. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So they were just saying, you know, he knew everything and regardless of, you know, what he was there for, he was definitely a part of this cult and he knew what was going on. He, he's guilty, you know, he now is taking back everything he said. He's saying, you know, he was coerced into saying everything. He's saying he was not a part of it. And he was kind of like quoted in all the newspapers as saying, everyone thinks I'm a monster. And that kind of triggered me. That kind of made me mad because I was like, no, everybody doesn't think you're a monster. Everyone knows you're a monster. Like that is such the things they did to that woman. Those women are just so gruesome and so horrible. You don't get to not be a monster. I went into watching the interview kind of trying to be open-minded just to, obviously after I had researched all of this, I'm clearly going to be like, this guy does not deserve to be out of jail, right? But I just tried to think of it from his perspective. And to be honest, I still just, I, I feel bad for Lori's family because in it, you know, the investigator, or I'm sorry, the interviewer is like, you know, what would you say to Lori's family if you were to talk to him? He's like, I don't want to talk to them. I never want to see them. Um, I feel for them, but I didn't do anything wrong and like stuff like that. 
And I just feel like even if you are innocent and you have some kind of guilty conscience about what your brother and his friends did, you would still want to talk to the family and just at least say, you know, I'm so sorry I was in the, I was in the wrong place, wrong time. He just didn't even seem like he wanted to defend himself. It was mostly just, no, I didn't do it. And, you know, she, the interviewer asks him questions and he, he just kind of shuts her down. Like she asks him about the cannibalism. Is that true? He, and he just says, I know nothing. I know nothing, which just so, seems rehearsed to me. I know in the Brandon Dassey interview that most of America has seen um, mm-hmm. from making a murder. To me, that's pretty, it's pretty clear to me that this is a young kid who is intellectually disabled and doesn't really know what he's doing. So mm-hmm. when you watch the interview of this guy, did he appear to, you know, to have a low IQ or, you know, you can just kind of tell, or did he ap- appear to be like a person who would know what right from wrong and, and that kind of thing? Well, he's what, like 60 now. So he, to me, seems fine. He does not, he was speaking fluent English, you know, like Brand- Brandon, Brandon Dess. He couldn't really even form correct sentences. Right. And he was well, just basically repeating, you know, yeah. what the investigators were saying. And, or he would say, you know, yes or no or yeah. Yeah. And these, uh, his stories, Thomas Cocorales's, uh, when he recounted what happened, it's all on tape. So you'd almost got to think if there's people out there fighting for him, they'd be releasing these tapes or something. If there was something that the police had to hide. Now, I'm not exactly sure about that, but yeah, he sounded coherent, and he was 21 when he was uh, first interrogated. Even that is a, an age that I feel like you've, you're no longer a teenager. Yeah, you might have a low IQ, but like I said, he was clearly involved. Whether or not he actually committed uh, murder, I just don't think it matters, because I think what happened was just... Two years of that is enough to keep someone in jail for the rest of their life, in my opinion. Um, and especially when he doesn't even seem to, he's not going to admit to anything he did. He's not going to say sorry. He wasn't, you know, oh, I've been given a new life and I'm going to do good now. He didn't seem like that at all. He actually at one point said, when he was asked about the victim's families, he said, you know, I'm out now and they have to deal with it. Uh, yeah. They want me to go back behind bars, but I'm not going to. They have to deal with it. And to me, that just doesn't sound like somebody who even made a mistake and feels bad about it. Right. It sounds to me like a person who I would be worried about doing something again because yeah. he doesn't take ownership for his behavior and what he did before. So I wasn't, I mean, I when I was looking up cases to do, I just thought, wow, maybe I should do this and just like let people know, you know, these people don't always get put away for life. And how many times do we hear, especially with rapists, that they barely get a conviction and then they're set free and there's high percentages of them that are recharged. And this guy now lives in Aurora, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's a pretty big suburb of Chicago. And I just find that scary, I guess. I guess they had his face out there and they have his name out there. Yeah, like he's done this interview. So if he has any common sense whatsoever, he would know that he better not do anything because he's going to be looked at. Oh, yeah. And actually, part of, I mean, the family fought to keep him in prison. But part of the reason um, he wasn't released earlier was because he was finding trouble finding a place to stay. 
He wanted to stay with his brother, but the landlord refused that. It kind of sounded like he just didn't really care to find a place. Like, because he could have obviously gone anywhere else. And his brother's like, I just pray that he'll find a safe place to live and isn't living on the streets. I don't know. I guess you have to have a place to stay before you're released from prison. Right. You have to have an address. You can't just be homeless. So it was taking him a while to find where to live. And I don't know if that's because he was like, "Mm, I don't care. I'll just take my time. Or if no one wanted him in their building, which I wouldn't either. So there were four men involved with this, possibly more, Mm -hmm. probably more Mm -hmm. at least that knew about it. Right. I think so. The Cocorellis brothers, Andrew was executed. And then like we just were talking about, Thomas is actually out now. Um, Right. The, uh, the leader, which is Robin Gett is serving 120 years, but then it says he'll be eligible for parole in 2022. So that's another like, God, what if he gets out, you know? Right. I mean, I guess because we go back to that, they didn't have enough evidence to convict him on all of the murders he didn't get any. He yeah, only got the attempted murder and rape of Beverly Washington. So Edward Spritzer, uh, who was sentenced to death, but then the uh, death penalty was abolished. Um, he's serving a life term. And it sounds like he's not going to get out. And it does actually sound like the other guy's probably not going to get out either. But I don't know. I guess you never know because then you see a guy like, Thomas Cocorales, who's who did get out. Right. And it's interesting when you have a crime that's multiple offenders, the difference in sentencing and the difference yeah. in what they will serve. And basically Robin Gett was the, like you said, kind of ringleader. He was the one that the others said kind of. They, they fall, yeah, it was def- he was definitely the leader. The other people were definitely followers. They knew that themselves. Um, he so, was the one yeah. that got the least, but he was probably also the smartest in many ways. So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting also that how many people did you say that they are kind of responsible for killing? Was it seventeen? They think seventeen or eighteen. And that was and, a span of of a little over a year. Yeah, like yep, about two years. That's crazy. And at the time, you know, they only had these. Gosh, how many girls do they have? The four girls, I think, that were murdered? Five. Five girls that were killed, and then Angel York was the one that was thrown back out into the street, and then Beverly Washington was alive. So also, we talked a little bit, or, you know, at the beginning I asked, it seemed like they were, their bodies weren't found for, you know, 10 days maybe being the smallest time span Mm -hmm. so did it ever say anything like were they holding them or just were the bodies just not found well yeah so they they said that well like in the interview um obviously we talked about the attic that he took them to in the interview they said that like they were you know raped and tortured for hours but i would almost assume that it would have been more than that but there was Borowski, Lori Borowski's body was actually like almost just a skeleton. So she clearly had been dumped and then just not found for a very long time. Okay. It didn't seem like in all of these circumstances, the bodies were found right after they were dumped. So when he was released, he 
went to Wayside Cross Ministries in Aurora, Illinois, and there were like huge protests. The guy that runs this Wayside Cross Ministries was interviewed. He kind of just said like, you know, I don't, I don't regret taking him in and was giving some percentages of how many people from Wayside Cross Ministries go back to prison versus how many people who just, you know, go anywhere else go back. Um, And I mean, I don't, I think that he's the person just giving people second chances, but it was kind of crazy that over in Aurora, there were protests and stuff for him living there. So he still lives there. So he went to live in kind of like a ministry then, like you said, nobody really wanted to take him, which is what a lot of times does happen. Yeah. The recidivism rate is extremely high for felons to go back into the prison system. It's not easy going out, but somebody like this, I it shouldn't be easy. There, yeah, there's so many, like I'm just <laughs> reading another article right now. There's so many articles about this, which is why I was so surprised that like, I didn't know anything about this. Like, I feel like I know about like all the other serial killers in Chicago and I've read books about them and stuff, but I had no, I had not even heard about this. Yeah. I haven't heard about this one either. Um, yeah, it was kind of crazy for, there was some quotes in various articles about how the public didn't believe that these guys were even capable of this because they had families and, you know, Rob, Robin Gett had three children um, and one of his children actually is in jail as well. He shot a man. There's always those articles that are like 10 crazy facts about this serial killer, you know, and it was like this guy had ties with John Wayne Gacy. Um, his son has now been charged just like weird ties that he had. Oh, it was also thought that they were responsible for the disappearance of Carol Pappas, which was the wife of the Cubs pitcher Milt Pappas. Um, she disappeared on September 11 of 1982. So right within that time span. Um, but then her body was recovered five years later and her death was ruled an accident. So there's just all this like, you know, they're trying to tie all these other disappearances to them which is a good and a bad thing in my opinion. Cause I think we talked about this last time when it's like, you know, they, they get a guy on one or two and that's enough. So then they stop, but then there's all these other victims that we might never know what happened to them. But then again, people also just want to tie all these victims to the serial killers because they want to be able to say, Oh, well he's behind bars now. And that's not always the case. That's why, you know, they have, they have them on these five girls, but there's like 17 or 18 girls in total that they think that they're responsible for. These crimes were all happening in the attic of their, of, of his family home. Robin Gibb, with yeah. Which, wife and kids. So in this article, you know, that I talked about, it said the girls that would babysit his children knew that the, at the upstairs attic area was off limits. And the one girl tried to go up there and said it was boarded up. Okay. So how does your wife just accept that you have an attic boarded up and, not go in it. <laughs> right. And I've never been up. Well, I shouldn't say never. I have kind of walked up into our attic a little ways, if that makes sense. But I've never been like fully up there. But it's not locked up. And nobody's ever said to me, don't go up there. So Right. And if your husband, you knew, I mean, there's no way she didn't notice him going up there. Right. So if somebody's continually going up there, not even alone, but with friends too, yeah. And then tells you not to go up there. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I would think it's a curiosity in anybody, but me for sure, I'd be going up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on that I'm not supposed to know about. Yeah. 
for sure. Well, hopefully the other two stay in jail because it does, I'm reading like all of the convictions and of the four, Thomas Cocorellis was like the other guys, says Spritzer and Andrew Cocorellis were charged with the murder of Rosebeck Davis and Spritzer was booked for the murder of Sandra Delaware. You know, like it's like they wanted to connect murders to each person, but if you're in a cult, aren't you all responsible? Right. That's what I think too. Like you might not be able to connect them with physical evidence to every one of them because more than likely all of them weren't involved in all of the killings. At all times, right. Because they knew about it and they were accessories to the crimes, it's, it just seems like they all should have had the same charges. But yeah, you, with the evidence, I'm sure that, especially maybe at that time. I'd. Yeah. That one was a good one, Jenna. Like we said, we've never heard of that. Yeah. What? So Jenna, like, you know, I knew when you said this had satanic um, mm-hmm. rituals or whatever, that it was going to be in the 80s, even before you said that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, obviously you were too young to know, but, you know, I just kept thinking Geraldo Rivera's name was going to come up because he was such a talk show host that was like everything in those days was satanic and everybody was you know on high alert for all of this and and I almost wonder if that's why some of it was not as well known or published because it was just a kind of a panic at that time everything was satanic yeah like I said there was a lot to choose from in Chicago so so we have to look forward to other Chicago cases right from you oh yeah I've already got a couple I mean like I said my not my, I hate saying my favorite, but I think the most, one of the most interesting serial killers is H.H. H. Holmes, just because, God, like, the things he got away with, and I mean, it, it was a long time ago, so it did make sense that yeah, he, that uh, an interesting one, I like that one, if recently just finished the book about him, but then, like, you've got Richard Speck, who I don't even know if I could ever talk about him, because it's just horrifying. <laughs> it gives you nightmares. Oh my gosh, it's just, ugh. Okay, well, just want to update everybody that, you know, Facebook is up and running. We have a new logo on there that we're pretty excited about. So go check out our Facebook page. We just got our logo back from uh, a coworker of mine designed it for us. Her name is Shelby Learner. So we want to give a shout out to her because she did an awesome job. And I'm super excited to be putting that out there. Uh, So when you guys see it, please make sure to show us some support. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Go check us out on our social media pages. Bye.